0: Welcome to Sights and Sounds, a yearly podcast series that features leading scholars and experts discussing some of New York City's most important historic places and institutions. I'm your host, Peter Christian Eigner, director of the Gotham Center for New York City History, which produces the show each fall for Open House New York Weekend. In this episode, Judith Wellman talks about the Weeksville Heritage Center in Weeksville, Brooklyn. This museum and cultural hub is built on the grounds of community only rediscovered in the late 1960s. It had been one of the two largest free black communities in the U.S. from the 1830s until the Civil War, when there were just over 100 such communities in the nation. Founded by a set of prominent leaders in New York, it was held up by figures like Martin Delaney and Henry Highland Garnett as a model community in what some historians call the early days of black nationalism. Many of its 500 plus residents were homeowners, and it boasted a relatively large number of skilled workers, business owners, and professionals, both male and female. Its leaders were also regional and national figures. Here, Judith Wellman, Professor Emerita at SUNY Oneonta, draws on her 2016 monograph on Weeksville, entitled Brooklyn's Promised Land, for a summary of its enduring historical importance. To hear the rest of the series, visit us at gothamcenter.org or find us wherever you get podcasts. Thanks for listening.
1: Welcome to this talk on Brooklyn's Promised Land, Weeksville, New York, an amazing community established in the 1830s in eastern Brooklyn. In 2014, New York University Press published Brooklyn's Promised Land, the Free Black Community of Weeksville, New York. This book emerged from a major public history project about the lost community of Weeksville. It focused on four small houses in Hunterfly Road in eastern Brooklyn, now part of the Weeksville Heritage Center. We discovered from this project that Weeksville was one of about 100 independent black communities established before the Civil War. It had a cosmopolitan population. People from all over the United States, including the southern United States, settled in Weeksville, along with people from the West Indies and West Africa. Residents in Weeksville were active in every major movement for the rights of African Americans in the United States. Weefsville began in the 1830s, partly because New York State abolished slavery in 1827. There was a large population of people of color in western Long Island. More than a third of the Kings County population at the first U.S. Census in 1790 were African Americans. Most of them then lived in slavery. Weeksville was also born in opposition to the American Colonization Society's plan to send black people to Africa. In Brooklyn in 1831, hundreds of residents held a meeting to oppose colonization. We know of no other country where we can justly claim our rights as citizens, but in these United States of America, our native soil, they said. Philip Bell noted, here we will take our stand and we will tell the white Americans that their country is and shall be our country. In 1829, land became available in eastern Brooklyn from the estate of Dutch landowner John Lefferts. The Lefferts House, built in 1783, still stands in Prospect Park. Weeksville land developers included a wide variety of people. Samuel Anderson had been formerly enslaved, became a minister, bought land to sell to other developers in Weeksville. Sylvana Smith was a hog dealer and he bought lots, as he advertised in the New York Times, for sale to colored people. Francis Prince Graham, a minister from Charleston, South Carolina, had been implicated in the Denmark Vesey Rebellion in 1822, sent to West Africa, ended up as the largest black landowner living in Weeksville. Weeksville was developed on the glacial moraines of eastern Brooklyn in the Bedford Hills, surrounded by prosperous farmlands. By several measures, Weeksville more than fulfilled the hopes of its founders. As the Christian Recorder, the largest black newspaper of the period, noted, Weeksville is a model for places of much greater pretensions. Its population grew to 521 people by 1855. People owned property in larger proportions in Weeksville than in Brooklyn as a whole, and at least six Weeksville women owned property. Political rights in New York State were recognized for African-American men who owned at least $250 worth of property. About a third of the adult men in Weeksville fit that requirement. Weeksville's school became a model for uh, schools across the country. The Colored School Number 2 had 60 students registered in 1851. Its principal, Junius C. Morell, was a nationally important activist, educator, journalist, born enslaved in North Carolina. Weeksville had two churches before the Civil War, Berean Baptist, which is still there, Pastored by Simon Bundick and the African Methodist Episcopal Church pastored by Edward Africanus and others, later St. Philip's Episcopal Church settled in Weeksville. Weeksville became a safe haven for people escaping from slavery on the Underground Railroad and also for the draft riots that hit New York City in 1863. A large number of refugees from the city of New York, they noted, came out who had been driven out from their homes in Brooklyn. Weeksville also had a robust community organizations for recreation. People came from all over Brooklyn on Sunday school excursions to especially Atlantic Park, where people would have swings, a cartload of clams and oysters, and a few kegs of lager, at least for some people. Weeksville had at least two baseball clubs, the Weeksville Unknowns in 1860, I think someone had a sense of humor to call it that, and the Garnett Club, named after Henry Highland Garnett, organized in 1880. For Weeksville, as for the country as a whole, the Civil War became a turning point. African Americans formed about 10% of the Union forces in the Civil War, Both Army and Navy, at least seven Weeksville men served in the Army, in the Union, and five served in the Navy. After the war, Weeksville became nationally known as a black community, but ironically, at the same time, it lost its physical identity because Brooklyn expanded eastward and took over what had once been a small village. One of the nationally important organizations in Weeksville was the African Civilization Society, formed originally to send people of color to West Africa, to what's now Nigeria, but then it became a major source of support for freedmen schools in the South after the Civil War. It was headquartered in Weeksville where they published a newspaper called Freedom's Torchlight People like Martin Delaney, the father of black nationalism, Henry Highland Garnett, who ended up living in Liberia, Mariah W. Stewart, the first black person, woman of any color to speak to a mixed audience, all were affiliated with the African Civilization Society. The Howard Orphan Asylum, named after General Oliver Howard, had 150 children by the 1890s. It was established in 1866 to meet the needs of women and children in the aftermath of the Civil War. The school continued to be a model for national schools everywhere. It was the first school in the US, the first public school to integrate both the student body and the faculty. It was promoted by T. McCant Stewart, a brilliant lawyer, school board member, and ultimately author of the whole legal system for this country of Liberia. Maritza Lyons was the assistant principal, and she taught both white and black students and student teachers. The stability of a democracy depends on no race, sex, creed, or color discrimination in civil affairs, she wrote. The Brooklyn Home for the Colored Aged was established in 1900 by a couple of black women doctors, Susan mckinney Stewart, Verina Morton-Jones, who were some of the earliest women doctors in the United States, who also worked for settlement houses for women's suffrage for temperance. As Weeksville developed these expanded institutions, these nationally important institutions, it also faced dramatic changes. Construction of the Brooklyn Bridge in 1883 led to the expansion of Brooklyn Street Grid wiping out much of Weeksville's hills and valleys and built environment. Wooden buildings originally built in Weeksville gave way to brick row houses. As the Brooklyn Eagle noted, brownstone stores and Philadelphia bricks have been erected by whole blocks and now extend out to Rochester Avenue, which is Weeksville, and many of them are still there. By 1910, Weeksville had lost its identity as an independent African-American community its core population of African Americans lives side-by-side now with Germans, French, Irish, Italians, Jews, a few Chinese. 1911 was the end of an era, marked by the sale of a Howard Orphan Asylum to the Nassau Railroad Company, now part of the MTA, and it's lost that building and, and with it its sense of identity. 1941, Kingsborough Housing was built across what is now the Weeksville Heritage Center. And it wasn't until 1968, ironically, again, with urban renewal, that people began to understand that that area once had been a major black community that symbolized the independence of black people across the country. Through maps, printed materials, artifacts, People like Jim Hurley and Joan Maynard discovered clues to Weeksville's existence. In 1969, a group of boy scouts did some salvage archaeology at what's now the site of the Weeksville school. And behind a mantelpiece, they discovered a tintype of a young woman that often is now called the Weeksville Lady. She's become a kind of symbol of the Weeksville resurgence. What we now know is that Weeksville was a model community, that black Americans found physical safety, economic prosperity, education, political power in Weeksville. Ironically, only by withdrawing from dominant culture white communities could Weeksville's residents live out what many people would call the American dream. And only by creating and exploring a separate space could they understand and actualize the full meaning of freedom today the weeksville heritage center interprets this nationally important story through its four houses historic houses on hunterfly road and through a state-of-the-art visitor center go visit and bring friends thank you so much for coming to this talk today and also for carrying on the vision
0: thanks for listening to this episode of sights and sounds be sure to check out the rest of the series available wherever you find your podcasts or online at gothamcenter.org, where you can learn more about the rest of our programming here at the Gotham Center for New York City History. I'm your host and the show's producer, Peter Christian Agner, director of the Gotham Center at the Graduate Center City University of New York. Be safe, everyone, and enjoy Open House New York weekend.